Welcome to Twill and another COVID-19 law and policy brief produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. As you should be aware by now, our goal is to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic. For more information on the COVID legal response, please check out our report, Assessing the Legal Responses to COVID-19, which is at covid19policyplaybook.org. In the report, 50 national experts assess the U.S. policy response and provide recommendations on how federal, state, and local leaders can better respond to COVID-19 as well as the future pandemics. On Twitter, please use the hashtag uh, COVID Law Briefing for any questions or comments you may have in response to today's show. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Joining me today are Professor Scott Burris from Temple Law School. Professor Nicola Glover-Thomas from the University of Manchester in the UK, Professor Niels Hopper at the Faculty for Humanities and Social Sciences at Leibniz University, Hanover, Germany, Professor Anik de Ruta, Professor of European Law at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and Professor Dominique Sprumont from the Institute of Health Law at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland. Welcome to you all, and thank you for battling the various time zones to join us here today. We know from our work in the US and our rapid assessment report. We know that policies and institutions have been problematic in many of our countries. But I wondered if we could start by sort of asking you to identify sort of one specific or a top level example uh, of failure, but also perhaps to counter that, identify uh, from your experience where you think there has been a success. Why don't we start with you, Nicola? Okay, thank you. Um, well, I think probably one of the resounding failures that um, has uh, um, really affect the UK and is not something we haven't we have yet managed to um, overcome is the ability to try and ensure that we have a consistent uh, messaging in terms of how we respond to COVID. We have obvious failures around track and trace. Um, we haven't overcome that particular problem and that in itself has become something of an issue which we've focused on where we've sort of failed to look at other things that have sort of not worked particularly well either. We've had issues around things like um, ensuring we can um, test sufficiently in enough numbers to ensure we're, we're getting through the amount that we need to do so quickly. Uh, we've also had problems with compliance, people not taking it seriously or not taking it seriously enough. So um, that is obviously one issue that um, hasn't yet managed to be got through. And that's to do with messaging and making sure people are, are really fully aware of, of what the issues actually are. I think one of the sort of saddest failures that we have noted, noted in the UK really was from the care home debacle, where people really have suffered the brunt of, of the the COVID impact uh, for those people who are vulnerable and living in care homes where there wasn't any form of joined up system of, of, of dealing with, with their needs in the sort of the, lands, the COVID landscape. I think from a success point of view, I think what we can say is we've learned an awful lot from the first wave and the first sort of initial steps to try and respond to, um, to, to COVID. And I'd like to say we sort of, we have, we have done some, um, made some efforts to, to, to take note of these sort of failings um, when we've sort of come towards the, the second wave and obviously likelihood is the third wave is to come as well. I think one of the biggest problems, of course, is just how we sort of manage to um, overcome the problem of apathy and sort of, you know, we're, we're all sort of fed up with lockdown, we're fed up with all of those things. And I think from um, a sort of a, a policy institutional point of view, that's really a really difficult thing to overcome. Niels in Germany? Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I have 
two examples, one for um, a bit of a failure at an institutional level and one of a rather successful uh, approach to things. And the one that, that's the failure is at the local level and the successful one is at the highest level. The failure, to a certain extent, was that uh, Germany has a very bureaucratic system of local public health offices. And uh, their main job used to be dealing with isolated measles outbreaks in kindergartens. And they were suddenly, from one day to the next, uh, thrust into the limelight of having to organize large-scale testing uh, and run important statistics. And these statistics will then, in turn, inform policy and and make huge differences to people's quality of life. And they weren't doing that particularly efficiently to start off with. And they probably still aren't to a certain extent. And just to illustrate how bureaucratic they are, uh, all of the people who work in these offices, very regional offices, not just state level, it's it's at community level, they're all civil servants. And that means that they, they knock off work Friday lunchtime and they don't go back until Monday morning. And that hasn't changed in the pandemic to a certain extent. So Friday numbers, Saturday's numbers, Sunday's numbers, they're all lagging behind slightly. And it's actually, to, to a certain extent, inexplicable why during a, a pandemic that's threatening our very the very fabric of our society, you still have these civil servants who, who clock off uh, their shift and go home. And then you have uh, a sort of a run of very low infection numbers for two days. And then suddenly they go up again as numbers catch up. So that's something that's being perceived rather critically here. And I think that's something that we'll have to revisit after this is over. In terms of success, I think the big one is having a chancellor and a chief of staff who are scientists and medics, and where we had uh, at a policy level from very early on, regular, sometimes daily briefings that were evidence-driven, science-driven, that were very reassuring in the sense that when a policy was introduced or a measure was introduced, there was always also a presentation of what evidence that was based on with a direct and clear sign and pathway towards the actual scientists who were doing the work and who were interpreting the numbers. And then you could go and actually have a look at their public communication of science. How are they justifying their numbers? How are they justifying their methodologies? That has a flip side to a certain extent, because there were one or two points uh, during the pandemic where the scientists weren't quite happy with each other, and they were questioning each other's methodologies and the numbers and, and so on. But that was simply science being played out in the public eye. But the actual strong connection between high-level policy and science in Germany has been a hugely reassuring and successful feature. Of course, I take the perspective of uh, looking at the European Union response as a whole. I think what there's two things that, well, there's a number of things that didn't work very well. But just to preface this, the EU is, of course, only as strong as its member states working and coordinating together. And so this is something that is very important in the context of of looking at how the EU responded to COVID and how success or judging its success, basically, is that we can look at a lot of things that went wrong this time. But it's also good to have more of a, a look back in history and see how the EU responded to something like, for instance, swine flu. And just just before I go into saying what went wrong, I, I do want to say that I do think that in terms of solidarity and coordination, and also in terms of public procurement, for instance, for vaccines, etc., the EU now, in a, in a relatively short time in governance terms, has really done a lot better than what it how it did uh, during swine flu. But then um, uh, I think what what definitely is is a fail on the part of the EU and the way that the member states were coordinating in the EU was in the beginning when they closed all the borders uh, and um, and really made it, uh, uh, you know, that certain member states put in export bans, which is something that really was a, a long time ago that, that something like that happened in the EU. 
um, and quite historic actually. And I think on the one hand that shows the the uh, quite a, a failing of the of the the system that the EU is all about, the internal market. And at the same time, they were able to to remedy it relatively quick as well. But you do see a reflex there that is scary, right? It's not the reflex of solidarity. It's a reflex of, of, of closing your borders. But luckily, I think within a couple of weeks, they were able to um, to remedy this and uh, and, and they, they, they did start working together quite well. Another thing where I think that, that really there needs to be um, better coordination at EU level is on health communication. So we have the internet now and, and after swine flu, this was one one of the areas where everybody said we need to do this a lot better. This was at the time, particularly around uh, the vaccines, um, where you know in the UK people would get the same vaccine, but they would get two jabs, and in other countries they would get only one jab. And people really didn't understand how that was possible. Of course, the UK had had a lot more vaccine at the time for swine flu than any of the other member states, which was already a problem in and of itself. But um, um, when this is incredibly hard to get the communication right but people know what the government in France or Germany is telling its people and if that's different from what's going on in what's being told to people in Belgium everybody's asking why is this and there's probably some good reasons the, the nature of the healthcare system the way that it's organized etc but it's very confusing to people and I think it undermines this this sense of trust and, and legitimacy of, of policies and so um, I think they're um, they've already made some steps in coordinating measures messaging, etc. But I don't think they did a very good job this time around. So that would be definitely something I think that needs to improve. So I, I won't forget uh, to ask the question of you, Dominic, but um, I'd like to sort of push a little bit more on, on the EU response, if you like, and to follow up on what Nick has said. I mean, from, from the very beginning of the EU, there has been, you know, the exception for public health with regard to the EU and, and health more generally in many ways for the internal market. And I wondered whether that is still playing out, whether pandemics and these sorts of tragedies tend to push the EU to take a, a more dominant role in health, healthcare, public health, and, and, and the extent to which sort of expectations are, are being fulfilled or not. And I, I just wondered, uh, uh, maybe uh, going now to, to Niels, uh, your, your thoughts on that. I, I don't know whether I can ask Nicola or whether I, she can still answer before December 30th. First, I well, I guess sort of, maybe that's a very German perspective, but the, the EU, to my mind, still is vastly more than just the sum of its parts. And that means that there's more to it than a public health exception, for example. There are things that aren't just the rights to freedom of movement of services and people, but also an ingrained tradition of it at this stage. And that has led to things such as German hospitals taken on Belgian, French and Italian patients at a time when their hospitals were overwhelmed. And there was almost an immediate transfer of weights uh, amongst the different countries. And that, and, and I agree with Anik that there was um, an alarming, uh, palpable response that was non-solidary uh, when it first started. But there are also these stories where you see that the health system started compensating for each other's. And that's based maybe not in um, sort of legislation or some sort of legal instrument, 
but it's based in a European tradition and a culture that has by now um, established itself. And, um, and other activities at European Union level are perceived in member states. We in Germany would very clearly see that joint purchasing approaches to getting PPE in and getting vaccines in and so on. These are very reassuring aspects of the European Union for, for uh, citizens in the member states. So I, I, I do think that there's more to it than, than, than this initial feeling that you have that the European Union may be coming under a certain strain that it can't compensate for uh, under such a pandemic. No, what is very what was very interesting in the beginning when because you, you talk about the public health exception. So just to be a bit lawyerly, uh, and I, I hope that uh, that people are okay with that. But what was very interesting in the beginning is that um, uh, when there were these these export bans, so usually the public health exception in EU internal market law is always used for member states to protect their national public health system. So whenever, you know, it was about protecting the amount of alcohol in 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 in, in uh, Cassis de Dijon or all of those cases. It was always about protecting national public health, and, and that is also why that this exception was always there, so that member states could always claim in this particular case, this particular national law, we need to uphold despite it uh, limiting you know uh, the free market, the flow of goods or, or or whatever across Europe. Now in this case, with in case of these export bans. Interestingly, the commission created a new public health exception in, in one of its uh, communications to the member states to say you should not have these, these export bans. So it created an exception to the public health exception, which was an exception of EU public health. So, so rather than saying national public health, they said this is so bad for EU public health, for us as a population, because now certain medical goods uh, can no longer um, move to those countries that need them most, etc., uh, that these, this, there is an exception to the exception in this particular case. And so I thought that was very interesting. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to see how they will develop this, because, of course, there is a need to also, there is a public health need to also protect the whole of the population in the EU in terms of health, health interests, etc. And uh, sometimes those, those two can clash. And that, that was exactly what was going on here. That's fascinating. And so, Nicola, this must have been a little uh, politically fraught, I guess, with where the UK is with regard to EU at the moment, to sort of really be fully involved at, at, in a, at, an, at an EU level of initiative? Yes, I mean, I think, obviously, you know, the timing of all of these things coming together made things particularly sort of um, fraught, certainly early on, when, you know, the UK was, as with every other country, scrabbling for PPE, enough ventilators, believing that we really were short of what we would need. Um, I, I'm not, my, my understanding is that there was, um, through hook or by crook, there was sufficient, um, you know, willingness to work together um, at that point in time to sort of ensure that those needs were, were covered. Um, and I'm not aware that, that at that point, so the, the whole Brexit debate even really had huge impact at the time. We we're talking initially when this first sort of really kicked off, you know, that the, the, the public health mandate was absolutely the one that was was um, taking taking priority at that point. It's been um, fascinating in, in the United States, obviously, to see the relationship between the federal government and the states and also between the states and local governments. Dominique, I'm really interested in the relationships between the Swiss Federal Council and the cantons and, and how that laid out uh, during during the pandemic. Well, thank you. I, in fact, when I was listening to you about the, the, the previous uh, 
colleagues about the, the, the failures and, and success of institution. I was also thinking about legal institution. And the first I had in mind was the federalism. Because uh, uh, if you look at the first wave uh, based on the federal act on epidemics, it was the federal government which took uh, uh, and which was granted the power by law to take all the necessary measures. And globally, Switzerland scored quite well in the fight against uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, during the first wave. Uh, uh, we did better than other countries without introducing uh, uh, any, you know, full measures of confinement and, and lockdown. Uh, most of the measures were taken voluntarily uh, because the population had a strong confidence and trust in the way the government was communicating. Uh, Niels mentioned the, 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 the evidence-based policy and evidence-based communication that was going on. And I think this was very uh, uh, sensitive in Switzerland uh, and part of the success for the first wave. In June, the parliament, uh, and, and it, it was adopted uh, later in September, the parliament started discussing in June and adopted uh, a new law on the fight against COVID specifically. And that law gave back the power to the cantons. And, and uh, what uh, Anik mentioned about coordination, this is exactly the problem we are facing right now because the cantons are not fully uh, coordinated. I will not say that they are not coordinated uh, and that is common also to the situation in the EU, but they are not fully coordinated. And uh, due to the fact there are differences uh, in the way the pandemic is developing from one place to another. And, and remember, Switzerland was first touched uh, 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 in, in Ticino next to northern Italy. And that, that was, uh, for most of the Swiss, something that we were looking at television. It was not our reality. And then it moved to French-speaking, uh, Latin uh, 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 part of Switzerland. And it didn't really go to the German-speaking section of the country uh, uh, until right now in the second wave. And this created a tension. And uh, um, I believe that right now we have a problem. Uh, the, the federalism, in one sense, has been a success in the way that we were able to transmit the power to the federal government when it was necessary during the emergency uh, part of the pandemic. Now that we are more in, in a, you know, uh, I would not say hopefully business as usual, but we are, you know, we, we know more about the situation. We have more tools to fight against it. Now we are talking about vaccinations and so on. The lack of uh, strength sometimes of the, the, the federal government is creating uncertainties within the population. And, and I'm worried about that because we are just starting right now talking about vaccinations quite late compared to the German or to other countries. And because of that, we are not preparing the field very properly to make uh, uh, the measures being fully implemented uh, for the best of the interest of the population. And I'm concerned about that. Well, I, I, I've just been listening too to all this. And, and while I was listening, I went and just checked the rates, both overall for the entire pandemic and more recently for our countries and realized that I, I would be hard pressed to figure out who lived in a country that seemed to be doing you know, more, more poorly and who lived in a country that seemed to be doing well. We can all point to the flaws and failures, but you know, Germany has uh, overall, you know, it's the only country among us that has, well, it's got about 1,300 per 100,000 cumulative case rate. Um, United States, by contrast, has 4,100 per 100,000 cumulative case rate. And then we have this division, you know, there's a kind of, you know, UK, at least from the United States perspective, is always seems to be in a COVID crisis. But, you know, overall, in, in our group, it's next to Germany, about twice as bad on all the measures, but still much better. In the Netherlands, where I think we've been very, it seems like there's been a sort of relaxed approach overall, is actually one of the higher countries in terms of the cumulative case rate. You know, it's in the 3,000s or 100,000. 
so I guess, and of course, Switzerland getting to be like, you know, it's, it's, it's following closely the United States these days, both in trends and total cases. So I guess I'm wondering if we step back in that light, what is it about our legal systems and, and uh, if anything about our legal responses that, that you might speculate at this point uh, is in some way significantly associated with <laughs> these different results? I know there's things to criticize, but why is it working better in some places and not others, places that are very close to each other and often seem quite similar? I don't know that it's really down to the law. I, I, I honestly think it's more down to, to politics and behavior. And I know that that uh, in the Netherlands right now, there's enough legal possibilities to ensure stricter measures, but the Dutch are just not doing it and probably also not accepting it. And I, I have spoken throughout the, um, the outbreak also with uh, civil servants in other countries that were, you know, at the time dealing with the response. And one of the very important things that, that I think policymakers in this respect look at is what are pe- people willing to, what can people actually implement in their daily lives and what are people willing to accept? And you see, of course, in Sweden, people would also not accept a lot of uh, infringements of their freedoms, etc. But there, the impact is a lot less because they don't live so close as they do in the Netherlands. But really, it's the, cult- the culture is somewhat similar. I think there's many, it just also really points to the many limits of law. Yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, I think that is an excellent point. Uh, although I, I just want to say, looking at this number, I was kind of surprised to see this too. Uh, last In the last seven days, Sweden's had twice the, the, the rate of cases as the Netherlands. You guys have, seems like you've turned it around this latest wave. That's my perception. Um, uh, although overall, you're ahead of Sweden, you know, in cumulative cases. Um, so is it just, is it just the political and social maturity of countries? All I mean, we certainly concluded that there was plenty of legal authority. That wasn't the issue. Dominique, I think you think in Switzerland, legal authority may be getting to be kind of a crisis issue around this federalism point. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's a crisis, but it's an issue and uh, uh, it's more of a balance of power. The law is there and I think government have to decide how they want to react right now. Uh, but I want I want to follow up on what said Annick. You can see in Switzerland where uh, uh, the population is very dense and there is also a matter of demography. Uh, you can see that uh, in Lausanne and Geneva, around the Lake of Geneva, uh, what you call Lake of Geneva, Lac Léman, uh, uh, is a, a, a very dense population. And uh, it's the same for Ticino. And, and this is, there is a correlation between the density. Uh, look what happened in New York. I mean, this is, this is, this, these are elements that are based on the demography. And the, the German-speaking uh, part of the country, uh, for some sections, are, are mountainous and they are, they, they are less populous and so on. So we will need to do a lot of fine-tuning at the end. Uh, uh, and, and I believe that uh, a simplistic uh, 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 analysis right now uh, in the middle of the crisis is something I will avoid to do. What I mentioned before about federalism is, is more uh, about the solidarity in the sense that uh, at one point, uh, it was 10 days, 15 days ago, uh, the ICU were fooled. Uh, the number of uh, patients were pouring in and, and the hospitals could not follow up in the French-speaking sections. And you had hospitals in the German-speaking session of the country. We were not willing to shut down their uh, 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 non-urgent uh, 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 intervention. And they, they were not opening beds. And this was a, a real potential danger for the country because you, you had a lack of solidarity between the canton. Actually, today, uh, the German-speaking section is suffering more. And so we the, 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 the situation is changing so fast that we have to be extremely cautious. But I believe that 
actually, we do have a robust uh, legal system. Maybe the problem is more a question of preparedness. We have the laws, but the civil servant you mentioned before in Germany, you go home on Wochenende. They, they, the law is there, uh, but are they prepared to apply it? Are the, the doctors prepared? Are you know everybody prepared? That I am less convinced. Let's move, if I may, from sort of the, the political institutions that are different levels of sort of federalism and local and state and so on, Canton, and talk about the courts. Typically, public health measures backed by laws, quarantines, lockdowns, isolations have tended to be short-run measures. What has happened in sort of the legal domain, uh, specifically with thinking about court challenges and so on, as these mitigation efforts have become lengthier or have mutated into sort of these periodic circuit breakers that we've seen, particularly in the UK, you know, hard hard lockdowns, soft lockdowns, and so on. Starting with you, Niels, I mean, I, I did see some pushback to uh, your chancellor uh, about bringing in a, a, a further lockdown, which seemed to have some sort of legal flavor to it. Um, how do you see the courts? Are there legal issues? for the courts to to even adjudicate in these types of cases uh, in in your countries and uh, if so what what do you think the results might be yeah there are certainly plenty of issues that the courts need to decide and I think that there's a connection to the legal bases on which um, the lockdowns are uh, are carried on and so it used to be emergency measures that were the basis for taking these very regionalized approaches to locking down certain states or certain parts of states and immediately I, I think I I only have the numbers from May this year that I looked up earlier. There were well over a thousand applications for judicial review uh, just for the first wave of the lockdown. So the courts were exceptionally busy with deciding these judicial reviews. And in Germany, as in many other countries, the first thing you do you, you before you do a judicial review, you try to get an interim uh, measure in place that basically stops the measure from, from taking effect. So you have a lot of interim hearings that were going on on whether the balancing is in favor of stopping the measure or supporting the measure. And as long as they were based on emergency powers, the courts were reluctant to lift the measures. And they were basically saying the effect of lifting the measure, even when you are right, may mean that the risk is higher getting it wrong once than getting it right 10 times. Therefore, as long as it was based on emergency powers, they tended to side with the state measure of the lockdown or circuit break. And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks now is that the government has started putting all of these things that they used to decide on the basis of emergency powers into statutes. So we now have a statutory basis. And under German law, if you have a statutory basis that interferes with a fundamental right in the German constitution, you have to specifically name the right or the freedom that is touched on in that in that measure. And that suddenly then opens up a whole catalogue of well-known and well-trodden paths for the courts to do their balancing exercise between uh, interfering with a fundamental right and freedom and public health measures. So I'm expecting that the courts are going to be increasingly busy and that we're going to move away from interim applications to actual uh, main hearings on judicial reviews that need to decide whether a certain measure is ultra-virus or not. Um, so I, I do expect that they are connected to each other and that we're going to see more of it. But I think that's a healthy feature of a legal system to permit this and to then establish plenty of precedent that explains at the lower court level uh, 
what kind of decisions are justifiable and which ones aren't. So on to you, Nicola, and, and perhaps also if you would reflect on the role of judicial deference to executive action or statutory action. Yeah, well, I mean, we're fortunate for our purposes um, that yesterday the Court of Appeal handed down its judgment regarding the Dolan decision. Central focus of this of this um, case was about, you know, exactly the same issues about, you know, had the government um, stepped outside the, the boundaries of its powers using um, our public health legislation and had it effectively been ultraviolet in its decision to lock down in the first wave and also focused on issues such as, you know, had people's human rights been effectively compromised under the Human Rights Act. All of these issues that Nils has highlighted were um, discussed and dealt with in some detail. And the, the outcome was, as I actually predicted and expected, which was simply that this was outside the remit of the judicial sort of forum. And uh, the Court of Appeal said, this is quintessentially a matter for government. And we, we really don't want to get involved with this. And I can't really see that there's likely to be, then there may be more um, activity, but I don't think there's going to be much of a difference in terms of outcome. I'd be quite surprised if that was the case. It very much would fly in the face of the, the sort of traditional response in the, the public health domain. Of course, we've never seen a, a pandemic of this nature. But that said, I think the the, 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 the history tells us that, we, that the courts are generally really reticent to involved with uh, with these sorts of um, what appear to be highly political issues. In terms of deference, I think, you know, I, I think while there is, you know, some rumblings uh, against the position that the government have adopted in the UK around lockdown, around the, the, the way in which they've, um, they've operated their sort of their, their stance around dealing with the pandemic, the, the deference is po- possibly still there. But I think it's sort of couched in terms of this is beyond what you know us, us judges can do. You know, these are issues that involve far greater issues than just law. It's about how you mobilise, how you get things done, how you achieve outcomes that we all are looking to achieve. So it goes well beyond the private issues and interests. It's very much about public interest. And that seems to be the, very much the focus in the Dolan case. And I suspect it will continue to be the same sort of, uh, you know, focus uh, in any future judicial reviews that might take place later on. So Anika, a Dutch judge is more ambitious than that? Less deferential? No, 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 no. Similar. So similar to what Nielsen and Nicola are, are, uh, are saying. So there have been some challenges in court, uh, particularly around where the wearing of mouth or um, or of uh, masks. There was quite some protest against that, which is interesting because this, I, I don't know, you probably know all know this history of the anti-mask leagues during the Spanish flu outbreak. And in the Netherlands, certainly there have been very uh, vocal groups that are very much against wearing masks. So there, there was a case in Amsterdam where there was an area where there was a lot of shopping where the where this where the mayor had um, instated that um, everybody should wear a mask this was uh, in the beginning of the second wave and uh, there was a, a challenge against that because for a long time what was very problematic is that there wasn't indeed the same way that uh, Niels is explaining all of these measures were based on emergency laws and uh, the only emergency laws that can be taken in this domain in the Netherlands are at city level or at, at, at local level so the central government doesn't have that power. So everybody was waiting for a new law as that was that would allow uh, the Ministry of Health to come out and to, to exercise executive power in, in this area. And so everything had to be done locally. And so in this case, the mayor of Amsterdam, who was also the mayor of the of the security region of Amsterdam, had in had uh, created this law. And there, the judge said that you know they skirt around it. They say even though it is uh, probably not the best legal basis to be cre- 
creating these types of law and laws on, on, on not very sturdy legal footings, just in this particular case, the way it was phrased, blah, blah, blah. And then they get away, get away with it. Right. But actually what the, what the court was saying, yes, we shouldn't be doing this in this way. We should create a formal law at central level, but it's not there yet. And we're definitely not going to be the ones to, to, <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to do anything that's too political here. And so, yes, deference for sure. Dominic, most of us are waiting with bated breath and with our arms outstretched for, for, for the vaccine. Could you talk a little bit about how Switzerland is beginning to approach questions uh, around the vaccine, how it's going to be distributed who will be given the first vaccinations. And and I think as we all reflect on how, particularly in the US, how the pandemic has exposed racial and other disparities, how your countries are trying to inject uh, questions, considerations of equity in treatment and now into into vaccination. Thank you for the question. I want to follow up about the court role because, uh, ironically, the federal Supreme Court made a decision on the 16th of June about vaccination, and it had nothing to do with COVID. It had to do with a quarrel between divorced parents who were disagreeing concerning the, their child uh, vaccine, and the federal tribunal uh, considered that in the name of public for the sake of public health and the sake of the interest of the children, the parent who wanted the, uh, the, the vaccination had the priority and it should be given the priority uh, versus the parents who, who was refusing. And, and uh, we have, uh, uh, beside that, very few legal challenges linked to COVID. I was surprised to look at the situation in nursing home where actually a lot of people are complaining because they are very strict quarantine. But uh, meanwhile, in spite of the complaints, they are not following Followed up by by legal challenges and and uh, uh, people are complaining and and there are uh, uh, local solutions concerning your questions the decision of the vaccination has not been completely made I mean the, the, we have a task force who is right now working on the the basic uh, uh, conditions for this vaccination one thing that is already clear it's not going to be uh, compulsory uh, it will be uh, uh, at least in the first uh, stage uh, uh, voluntary uh, it will target primarily the healthcare workers and the vulnerable population, the people are at risk, and, and namely this will be the, the nursing home, which will have a priority. The aspect of discrimination, I will say right now in Switzerland, will not be a, a, a real challenge in the sense that uh, there are apparently enough vaccines that have been uh, uh, ordered. Uh, they have more concern about the distribution and the, the, you know, the technicalities of bringing these vaccines at minus 80 Celsius uh, to the right places. But the discrimination as such, I don't think right now is a major issue, basically because the vaccination is going to be organized by the public health authorities. And those public health authorities are not known to have, uh, 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 you know, to, contrary to some other countries, they, 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 they are not uh, uh, known to have those uh, uh, prejudice against some of the population. Maybe, of course, we can discuss about uh, the, 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 the prisoners, we can discuss about the migrants, and so on. But um, as far as I hear, even from the public health authorities which have to, to cope with the vaccination, they are putting this 
those populations into the pictures and, and making sure they will be they will be included. So um, Switzerland, for this aspect, will not be a place where I expect to have a, a real challenges. I have more concern about motivating the population. Uh, uh, talking about uh, legal element today uh, was launched uh, initiative. You know, uh, Swiss don't go to courts; they go to vote all the time, and we have a very stable legal and, and voting system, a democratic system since centuries, uh, and, and we don't challenge our uh, uh, democratic decision in court usually. And, and there has been an initiative, pop, uh, a, a people initiative that was launched today about stop uh, binding vaccination and they want to introduce a provision in the federal constitution, Article 10, which deals with the freedom of life, the, the right to life and the personal freedom and stating that uh, uh, anyone who refuse a vaccine should not be discriminated based on this uh, refusal, either professionally or socially. I don't give any chance to this initiative, but it's going to take a lot of energy politically and and, uh, uh, and for the, the the public health community during the coming months, I'm sure. But as, as, as we uh, sort of get to, to the end of our of our time here, I, you, you, you've you've once again raised, I think, that question of solidarity, and and this also goes back to the question of judicial review. You know, it's certainly an element of vaccination. It seems pretty clear that that one of the prior structural deficits in the United States that COVID has shed more light on is is really a crisis in solidarity. You know, we seem to be at a point where a, a lot of people don't feel that their highest obligation um, or that they have a strong obligation to the welfare of everybody. And, and we're seeing that mirrored in the cases. I mean, one of the things that just came out in in the last week was a case about uh, closing down religious institutions brought against Governor Cuomo of, of New York. And there were several um, concurring opinions from the new libertarian judges. And they uniformly advanced a theme that has been, I think, appearing in a lot of the cases uh, in the last few months here, and that has accelerated as the time that, that Nick talks about has gone on and uh, skepticism, perhaps, about the measures has, has increased. And basically, it's this. Um, you know, Jacobson was a social contract case. And the, the rationale in, in our great, Jacobson was our great vaccination case. The rationale in that case 100 years ago was that, of course, you had to be vaccinated if necessary to prevent the spread of an epidemic. Liberty is a fine thing, but ultimately, there's no liberty without without the, the welfare of the community. And that when there's a, a choice between protecting individual liberty and protecting the community, obviously, we choose the protecting the community. Well, now we've got decisions in the midst of the COVID epidemic that are saying, well, you know, the danger to liberty of making somebody wear a mask or making somebody close their business or not be able to go to church is much greater than <laughs> any concern about public health. That in fact, if it comes down to a trade-off, the purpose of government is to protect liberty and health follows rather than the purpose of government is to protect everybody's welfare and, and liberty is one element of that. It doesn't seem like that's happening in Europe. Um, it seems like you still sort of have a stable social contract, but I wonder if, if, if you'd comment on that. Well, I have under my eyes uh, the uh, latest result of a publication, it should be online in the coming days, that is mapping the COVID uh, dead rate in Geneva. Geneva is a very rich city, uh, a very dense city where the wealthy and the uh, um, less fortunate people are living together, really next to each other. The risk of dying from COVID is multiplied by 2.5 or almost three times, depending you are living in a, 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 a deprived area or a, a wealthy area. And we have a very strong welfare system. We do have it. And, and there are no such discrimination. I gave a course about these uh, 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 figures this morning to public health experts, and we were all shocked. Uh, it was nothing about liberty. It was 
nothing about uh, uh, equity. It has nothing. It has to do with poverty. It has to do with uh, social discrimination in the sense of uh, uh, access, you know, to education and other elements. And here I am highly worried, and I think it is also a sign of the failure of our welfare system. If you have figures who are so dramatic, you you really have a concern of how our welfare system is working. The zip code health, as we as mm-hmm. we refer to well, it. So I mean, one of the things that obviously the the, uh, the UK is known for is it's the NHS. So therefore, we have this so called system which is um, equal for everyone, universal access, and so on. But what was really interesting is in the first wave there was um, evidence that the use of the frailty index was being used initially to deal with um, very hard decisions about who would have access to ventilators. Um, this was at a time when we were still sort of trying to bring in more ventilators, make them available. Um, and so we were having sort of, you know, typically the elderly population who were coming in very hard hit by COVID. And the frailty index is something that is um, that, that we use to not identify where we should ration, but it's there to be used to identify need and to identify the, the, the necessity for service provision and so on. So it was being used uh, in the complete opposite way that it was intended for. Um, so you're, I think you're right to a degree, Dominique, about this idea that um, it's not so much necessary necessarily about discrimination around population groups and so on. It's more about issues of, of, of socioeconomic um, standing and poverty. And those sorts of things are really driving the COVID cases up. Uh, unfortunately for um, the elderly, th- th- they tend to be a really good example of either the very well off or actually the very, um, very poor, quite honestly. And they are the people who, who uh, were pretty highlighted with the, with the use frailty index. So I, I think when you have it in, it's institutionally there, when you've got to do something to make a decision about where you put very strict and very limited resources it was a really clear case of we've got to you know we're going to use our our um, methods that we have we're going to use them in a way that we weren't designing them for but to try and work out where to where, where to put our emphasis so it's quite concerning time of course is not our friend and and, and we need to let you get back to your your great research but let me finish and i'll start with you niels you know at, at some point we're going to get back to this new normal that people keep describing that it is going to be safer for us and therefore our attention, our legal skills, our analysis will start shifting from the horrors of the present to how we can deal better with things in the future. Is there something that you would put on top of sort of the legal agenda in in your country uh, to make things better, to perhaps avoid the true horrors that that we're seeing all of our countries go through? Yeah, I can sort of, to a certain extent, I can put my ethicist hat on and I can say um, what we've experienced in the last 12 months is the stuff that we've been um, theoretically working on for decades and when it came to the stress test we didn't do particularly well so lessons must be learned from this and one of the things that I'll be working on is in, in many jurisdictions especially in Europe you can trace a development in medical ethics all the way from the Nuremberg trials to present day which has seen an increase in individualist notions of decision making and ethics and entitlements and freedoms and away from uh, communities and families and uh, and things such as those. And I think this may go to a certain extent towards Scott's point of solidarity. I think it's time to hit the brake a little bit on that development and reflect as a community and as a society whether we shouldn't start uh, explicitly weaving f- factors of solidarity, of community, of communal decision-making into our decision-making uh, uh, on the whole, which means the next time we're, we're faced with a pandemic, we might be actually able to respond in a little more efficient way and a more 
solidaric way than we did this time. Anik? I agree. I think there needs to be a new, new, new social pact. And you see that over the course of means it kind of started in the 90s also in, in Europe, that the welfare state has really had some had a hard beating. And I think that this now we see why we need it, right? And I think that uh, uh, solidarity is, is uh, uh, on the agenda in two ways between citizens within the sort of the relatively closed gardens of our welfare states, but also between states, because this has also really shown us that you cannot, when, when markets have globalized to the extent that they have, when, when manufacturers of, of vaccines and medicines have merged to, to, to be, you know, only five or six left in the world, really, the negotiating position of single member states or single states is nothing. And so you need to work in solidarity together to purchase medicines or to coordinate your responses. So the solidarity pact is also needs to be renewed and it needs to be replaced by something uh, that that can withstand sort of the, the all the other moves of technology and globalization, etc. And I think that's where we need to go for the future. I have a concern right now, uh, as I mentioned before. I, I, I have been shocked by, by the, the, the result from my colleague Idris Giesu uh, in Geneva. And, and uh, I believe that we also need as uh, academics to uh, encourage our funding agencies and, and, and the, the people defining the research policy uh, to move away from the pure pathogenic approach that is still uh, 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 the, the, the priority. And, and I can see that the Swiss National Science Foundation launched a funding, a large call uh, for the COVID, and it was exclusively reserved for uh, physicians and epidemiologists, a pure scandal in my opinion. And I think for that, we have to do better. And, and I, I see we, us uh, public health lawyers, uh, we are not being heard very well, and most likely it is our fault. We have to find a way to move into the politics and so on. And in fact, I spoke with the, the, the colleagues in, in, in Geneva and we are most likely going to speak with people from the government and so on to try to, to uh, uh, initiate a movement toward legal epidemiology and, 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 and all the work that uh, uh, many of you have been doing lately. So I think this is a direction we have to do. The principle, solidarity, uh, inequity, uh, the fight against inequity and so on, they are there. They are in the constitutions. They are in the public health law. But how do we translate that into actions, this is, I think, an interesting challenge. And uh, uh, we have to tell the physician that uh, maybe they should take less room and, and they should leave others uh, moving into the field. Nicolette, uh, you're, you're uh, currently rewriting some of your social contract. Well, I mean, I think certainly what, what um, the pandemic's done, if nothing else, is it's, it's just absolutely highlighted the, the impact of nearly in the UK 10 years of austerity and lack of funding and, uh, you know, a failure to really recognise the, the huge importance of a solid and an effective welfare state. I think just picking up Mill's um, point about sort of a more commun communitarianist approach in the future, I think that's something that, it, you know, it's a difficult conversation to have in many ways because we are riding on the back of over 40 years of, you know, individualism, autonomy, rules, okay, and all of those things. And we're actually saying perhaps that, um, you know, maybe there may be room for certain things, but there to be sort of, a, a, you know, a mandate, a mandatory this or that. I mean, that is a, it's a conversation that's going to have to be had in one way or another and it might be quite a difficult one to have but I think I agree that what this has certainly highlighted for all of us 
that is we aren't an island individuals we really do have to recognize that we interact and affect everybody around us and so that's got to be something that that is taken forward I think and everyone's going to I'm sure agree on that because it's just it's you know we've had it um, we've been hitting the face with this very much and, and we need to think about that in the future. Scott some closing words from you? I endorse the consensus you know I think we haven't had a legal problem we have had a problem with the society with it, which which the law serves and it is it is even in the in the happiest countries or the happier countries in this story it's a it is a story of of weakening solidarity. It's the story. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, you know, go further because I, you know, I, I keep everything I do in public health. I keep thinking, yeah, but I'm not talking about climate change because as bad as this one has been, this is just a little hors d'oeuvre in the coming set of dislocating shocks uh, and catastrophes that we're going to face unless we rediscover the idea that we're here on the planet um, and we build societies um, to stop the war of all against all and to create a commonwealth in which we work together to create the conditions in which we can thrive. And that, of course, it's, it's, it's not just going to be about um, trying to re... I mean, unfortunately, it's not now clearly just about trying to reduce inequality and bring us back to a point where everybody is able to sort of, as it were, consume at the same rate. The problem is we got to stop consuming. So we have this double challenge, both, I think, to, to continue the press towards uh, greater policies that redistribute wealth and support um, and, 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 and the access to the, to the conditions that are necessary for health, while at the same time thinking about how that system itself has got to be, be rebuilt so that we're not just depending on a bigger and bigger pie, because that's not going to work either. So I would say it's either a great time to be old or, or a challenging time to be young. But our role is clearly, I think, to keep the, the social eye on the ball by any means necessary. Well, thank you to my guests and to all of you for listening today. We'll be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon Eastern time, uh, starting up again in a couple of months, just go to at PHLAW watch or search hashtag COVID law briefing for more details. Recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website. The shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. We'll see you next time. Please wear a mask, distance yourself, and please stay safe.